Hey Icon, my name is Josh and we are in week six of our Father Abraham series. And I'm going to go ahead and uh, read our text for today. We're in Genesis 17 and I'll pray afterward and we'll kind of jump into it. Now this is a long text, so go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles. We're going to look at Genesis 17 through 18, 15. Genesis 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but uh, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations." And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of uh, your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be within your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety-nine years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael... I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with them, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son, Ishmael, were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. 
Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent uh, to Sarah and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before him. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child, now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, and about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, No, but you did laugh. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And even as we get into a text that might be a little bit confusing, we don't really, there's some cultural things that we can't really wrap our minds around God. I pray that you would help us, Father. I pray that you would help us to see from this text what it is that you have for us in believing you and not just believing in you, God. That by the power of your spirit, you would help me to communicate to my friends here at Icon, and you would even help me in my heart to move in deeper to faith, believing you for who you are, and not just simply satisfied with believing that you're there. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us today. pray that your spirit would be with us, and you would unite your power to my weak words, and that there would be fruit as a consequence, God. We love you, Lord, and we entrust this time to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said, we are continuing in our series, Father Abraham. And what we've covered so far in the Abraham narrative is 24 years of Abraham's life. We've covered 24 years, and we've seen these last 24 years as kind of this cycle of Abraham trusting God, and from that trust moving into being very self-sacrificial and loving and then we've also seen him do some really stupid things out of unbelief. That this, that the story of Abraham is a real life story that tells the real life narrative of a waning and waxing faith in God and the consequences that come from that. And so here in Genesis 17, where Abraham is 99 years old, 24 years have passed. I want to emphasize that 24 years have passed since God's initial promise. I'm 29. 24 years ago, I was five years old. I was just getting into kindergarten or whatever five-year-olds do. I, I don't really remember. But 24 years have passed. And so now in this section, we're going to find one of the most relatable pieces of Abraham's story. Abraham has been walking with God for decades with this nagging sense of fulfillment. When is it going to come? He spent the last 24 years rehearsing and remembering the promise of God in his mind and doing all that he can to live in accordance with that promise. And yet it's still not there. There's some callousness that begins to show on Abraham's part in our text today. 
He's not walked away from God, but as we'll see, he's let his expectations of God's promises so fade in his mind and in his heart that he feels as though the fulfillment of God's promise is literally laughable. He thinks it's laughable. He hasn't walked away from God. He's not gone back to Ur, where he first came from, but he's also not walking in the sure hope of God's faithfulness and power. And I wonder if this describes some of us today. So so the title of today's message is, Believe God, Don't Just Believe in Him. Does that relate to you? Is that you today? Like I said, Abraham hasn't walked away. He's just faded into this low-grade faith that just kind of knows that God's there but doesn't really expect him to do anything. He's settled into this low-grade form of deism that, yeah, there's a God, and you know I remember some things that he's kind of done in my life, but he's not really acting right now. Is this you? Genuinely think about yourself, consider yourself, and see... Do I believe in God, but not believe him? And am I a Christian by name, but in reality, a functional deist who doesn't expect the activity and power and faithfulness of God? Let me, let me help us a little bit. These are some statements, some ways of thinking that might uh, typify someone who is believing in God, but not believing God. And these aren't things that you might say explicitly, but they're ways of thinking to help diagnose whether we're believing in God and not believing Him. Here's a few. 2020 is unredeemable. It is up to me to fix this person. Freedom from this sin, whatever it is, is unrealistic. I am the sum of my failures. That, that's who I am. There is more power in a vote than there is in a prayer. My life is going nowhere. I've screwed it up too much. There's no turning Seattle around. I'll have peace when I have control. There's no taming this monster of anxiety. All of us, friends, are hung up by some of these hooks. All of us in some way, in in our ways of thinking, the way that we see the world, the way that we operate in the world are functioning as if God is not going to be faithful, as if God is not going to act in accordance with his promises. And these statements typify that. Rather than laying hold of his promises, it's a refusal to grab hold of his promises, of his power, of his love, of his grace. It's a refusal to take God at his word. Those statements assume a God who is inactive and inattentive. And if there's anything the Bible shows, it is not a God who is inactive and inattentive. And so, now that we feel a little bit of maybe some solidarity with Abraham in his low-grade faith in God, maybe we can learn some things from Genesis 17. Let's see how we can move from simply believing in God to actually taking hold of who God is, what he said he will do, and have peace. So what lessons do we learn from Abraham when it comes to believing God in in Genesis 17? First, the lesson we learn is to change our plausibility structures. 
to change our plausibility structures. Let me, let me read a little bit, both from Abraham and from Isaac. Let's, we're going to kind of look over this text in different portions today. So right now, Genesis 17, 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Look over at 18 verse 9. Talking about Sarah. Where is Sarah, your wife? And Abraham said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to her herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The first lesson we learn in this text is to change what's called our plausibility structures. So, so what does that mean? What is a plausibility structure? A plausibility structure is the, the, the filter by which we judge the world, that by which we live life and try to determine or discern what's possible, maybe what's probable, and what's just not possible, what's improbable. And this structure of, uh, of a filter learning about what is maybe going to happen and what absolutely cannot happen, it's, it happens through the accumulation of events that as we get older, as we progress on in life, we have more and more experiences that inform us in how to see the world and what to expect in life. So for instance, if, if you're in a relationship that is consistently toxic, that is consistently not healthy, the more and more experiences you have of that toxicity, the more and more you're able to understand and expect this relationship isn't going to be healthy. It's not probable or even possible that this relationship can be healthy. So that's what a plausibility structure is. And what is, what is Abraham's? What is Abraham's plausibility structure built off of in Genesis 17? His plausibility structure, his framework for discerning what is possible and what is not possible is built off of the physical world. He's 99 years old. He feels it in his body. And the same thing with Sarah, who is 90. They, they feel their age. They feel how elderly they are. Those elderly aches and pains are a sign that, to them at least, that God's promise was not going to be fulfilled. The longer and the more achy their body got, the more that it felt like the fulfillment of God's promise was not possible or even probable. So their plausibility structure was built off of how they feel in their body, what they discerned in the physical world or in their emotional and mental world. But not only that, their plausibility structure was also built off of their concept of efficiency. Like I said, they had been waiting 24 years for God to fulfill his promise. By any standards, that is not efficient. That is not efficient. And the longer they had to wait, the more that their trust in God's promise eroded. So, can we relate to that? Can we relate to that type of framework by which to see the world? Absolutely. 
our plausibility structures are basically the same as Abraham and Sarah. We try to think, we, we look at the world and we try to think this is possible and this is impossible, this is probable and this is improbable based off of what we feel, whether that is in our physical body like Abraham and Sarah or if it's in our circumstances and emotions and mental health. We discern what is possible in the world based off of what we feel, which is terrible. We all know that. We all know that dispositions change. I'm not even going to say emotions change because that's so obvious, but the dispositions of our heart, of our mind, change so quickly. It's such a poor and futile way by which to judge what's possible and what's impossible because it changes all the time. Like for me, my wife makes fun of me because when I get a headache, my whole world changes. I don't know what it is. Like I can have some aches in my body, you know, I'm, I turned 30 here in a couple weeks, so I feel a little bit more achy, but there, maybe it's because I'm a five, but when my head aches, everything changes. I could be in the best mood in the world. I could be the most joyful, expectant, and hopeful person. I could be having fun with my two kiddos. I could be, it could be whatever, but as soon as a headache hits, I am the worst person in the world. Something as simple as a headache for me, can fundamentally change my disposition, can fundamentally change the way in which I see the world. So our emotions, our, our disposition is a terrible way to judge what's possible. But not only that, we also, like Abraham and Sarah, view what's possible based off of our concept of efficiency. In our flesh, Hope has a certain shelf life. And if the fulfillment of a promise or an act or the help of God is not fitting those timestamps, we lose hope. We think it's past time for God's help, and so we no longer see the fulfillment of His promise as likely. So we, we sink into self-dependence. Or worse, out of suspicion, our, our suspicion of God's promises and God's character grows the longer we have to wait. We grow suspicious of God. It's a dangerous place to be. So what's, what's wrong with uh, having a plausibility structure built off of uh, dispositions and off of our concept of efficiency. Well, the problem is really at the foundation. It, it could be anything that would be uh, that, that we could use to filter a, uh, our decisions through and our thinking through. Any plausibility structure that does not take God Himself into account solely will end in disappointment. Filtering God's promises through anything but God's character gets us in a bad place. It grows contempt for God rather than trust. Let me say that again. Filtering God's promises through anything but God's character gets us to a dangerous place. Listen, doubt, questioning, totally normal. But that there's a difference between doubt and derision. There's a difference between doubting and questioning and having some, some confusion about why something might not have happened yet or why God hasn't uh, shown up in the way that we thought he would. But that's different than derision, which is what we see Abraham and Sarah do in this text. They laugh. They laugh at God. They laugh at the thought of God being faithful. 
That's not, that's not innocent. That's derision for who God is. That's growing so suspicious of his character and of his power that we deride with laughter the very thought of him actually doing what he said he's going to do. So, what are we to do? How are we, how are we going to actually change our plausibility structure? How can we really do that? Well, it's simple. Take God's character and his attributes, match them up against his promises, and literally a universe of possibilities opens up. If you would take what God has promised in Scripture, and again, we're talking about promises He has made, not things that we wish would happen, not things that we come up with in our own flesh, but promises that He has made. If we would take those, lay hold of them, match them up against God's character and His attributes, a whole universe of possibilities opens up. There's, there's nothing that can stand in the way of the fulfillment of that promise if our plausibility structure is built off of his character, of his ability, of his effectiveness, of his attention to us and to our world. There's nothing that couldn't happen. And so let me give some examples based off of some of the original statements I made about uh, what, what, might make, what might typify someone who's believing in God but not believing him. Let's, let's take God's promises, match them up against his character, and see what kind of comes out. If God is utterly truthful and cannot lie, then maybe the promise of grace actually means that he does not view me as the sum of all my failures, but rather as cleansed and pardoned. Or another one. If God is omniscient and benevolent, then maybe the promise of his provision actually can tame this monster of anxiety. If God is a father who loves to hear his children's request and then act in response, then maybe the promise of his arm not being too short to save should drive me to prayer when I consider Seattle's need, should drive me to prayer when I consider our nation's turmoil. If God is the all-powerful one who is bending the arc of history to land at the glory of Jesus Christ and our joy in him, then maybe the promise of him working together all things for our good includes 2020. Maybe especially 2020. Maybe that means that God has been using the, the mess and the disillusionment and the hardship of 2020 to seed in us some really wonderful works of resilient joy. If God is that way, then it's likely, it's de- his promise is dependable. And so we got to change our plausibility structure. We have to shift it away from what we're feeling in our bodies and our emotions and our dispositions. We have to get rid of our idea of efficiency that doesn't match God's timeline. And instead, we've got to embrace that God is who God is. And that's really good news because he is a good God who stays faithful to his promises. That every one of his promises are funded and enriched by his character. That we can believe what he says he says he's going to do because he is the way that he is. So we got to change our plausibility structure. But if we're going to do that, 
if we're going to change what, how we think uh, of what is possible, of what is plausible, then we have to confront an enemy in this battle. And that enemy is settling. Settling. Abraham settles in this story. Look at this in uh, 17 verse 18. So God had just again reiterated that he's going to give Sarah a, a, a son and Abraham laughs and this is what Abraham says. And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him. I shall, you shall call his name Isaac. After him, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will make him fruitful. I will multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you as a son this time next year. Abraham wanted to settle. Abraham, in the midst of doubting God's promise at such a fundamental and foundational level was deflated in his faith because he had a second option. He did. He had a second option that was slightly less uh, than what God promised. You know, it's just a little bit less. It was still a son though. It might not be the one that God had promised through Sarah, but it was a son who had at least had already been born. He wants to settle. And we do too. We want to settle. Human beings want to settle. Why do we do this? Because human beings take, like, like animals in the animal kingdom, want to take the path of least resistance. We want, to, we want to jump into and lean into just kind of inherently whatever is easiest. And if there's anything that's easier than hope, it's settling. It's settling. We settle and we call ourselves realists. Abraham was a realist too. How, how did God respond to that? So settling is an enemy. And why, why is this wrong? It's wrong, wrong because it puts us on the throne. Settling for less than what God has promised makes us out to be the ones who know everything, who understand every possible outcome. We make ourselves omniscient, and so therefore we can see where we think God has maybe gone overboard, <laughs> that he's overpromised. It's the equivalent to a little pat on God's head saying, hey, I know that you promised this, but that was a little bit too, uh, yeah, that, that was too much. That's, that's just a little bit too much for you to do, so I'm going to settle with this watered-down form of fulfillment. We become auditors of God's promise rather than joyful recipients of it. We become auditors of God's promise rather than the joyful recipients of it. And we think we're giving God a pass by settling, but in reality, we're making ourselves out to be God. We think we're, we think we're giving God an out to say like, oh, well, he promised this, but he's probably not really going to do it. So I'll kind of, I'll let him off the hook. We wouldn't say it that way, but that's what we're doing in our hearts and in our minds. We're making ourselves higher than God by releasing God from what we think he has overpromised. It's ridiculous. We want to settle 
Because faith is harder than its substitutes. Faith is harder than its substitutes. Listen to the theologian John Webster, how he says this, talking about faith. Faith is contested. It's contested by those who don't share our faith, and we ourselves contest it. We often feel dismayed by the fact that what we have believed in is so frustratingly intangible, invisible, apparently so far out of our reach. So often, it seems as if faith is hanging in midair, insecure, ungrounded, utterly perilous and exposed. Now, because faith seems suspended in nothingness, we often try to replace it with something else. Rather than hope, we want possession. Rather than things glimpsed in the half-light of faith, we want something we can see clearly and unambiguously. And so we build up a great array of tangible substitutes for the God whom we can only encounter in faith. These substitutes are a spurning of God. They are a refusal to have God on God's terms. To want those things is enmity with God. It's to want God on our terms and therefore to not want God. Settling spurns God. It it, it takes God's promise and again, we become an auditor of it and we want the promise. We want the fulfillment. We want God on our terms, which means that we do not want God and we don't want His promise in the way that He said He would do it. We don't want his fulfillment in the way that he said he would do it. It is idolatry. Again, it's setting ourselves up on the throne. And maybe not worse than that, but along with that, it's an orphan mindset of scarcity. The only reason you have to settle is if you think that you have to. If you have an orphan mindset that I don't have a loving father who has my best interest in mind. I don't have a loving father who is watching me, who who has made promises to me that he will come through on. I'm alone in this world. I've got to figure it out. And so I'm going to, but I still kind of want to be reverent toward God. And so I'm going to settle for this watered down version. It's a orphan mindset of scarcity rather than the mindset of a secure child that knows his father loves him. Her father loves her and will do all that he said he will do for him or for her because he is secure in the family. He has a loving father. She has a loving father. An orphan mindset grieves the heart of God. There is nothing, there is nothing that could grieve my heart as a father more than my daughter somehow getting into her head that I'm not for her, that I don't want the best for her, that she's going to have to figure it out on her own. That would grieve my heart deeply. And so we, we shouldn't settle, but we, we do it all the time. We do it all the time. Can I... So I, I, can I be a human in front of you right now? Can I be a little bit vulnerable about some of the ways that I try to settle? So I, uh, I came to faith in Jesus in 2009. And 2009 was this, it was kind of the height of what is typically, typically called the Young, Restless, and Reformed movement. And that's immediately the camp that I got into. And, and in, that, in that tribe, you know, 
um, there is this certain grunginess about it. Uh, and basically, I have a beard, I drink beer, and I smoke real cigarettes. Well, I've never been able to grow a beard. Uh, I enjoy beer, but not often. And it was really the one, that third one, that uh, a part of that Christian subculture of like, we're going to smoke. We're going to smoke because it's because we're able to, because grace gives us freedom to do that. And I just, as an 18-year-old, just kind of leaned into that. I was like, oh, cool, this is, you know, this is fun. I'm getting to know other Christians in this new, in this new way, and they're like really chill, you know? They're having a beer, and they're smoking a cigarette. And for me, it got its hooks in me. Smoking cigarettes got its hooks in me in a way that nothing else ever have. And for 10 years, it was, it, it whipped me. And for 10 years, God, I knew again and again and again and again was saying, put this down, man. You know that I have so much more for you. You know in the way that this clouds your mind, the way that this clouds your heart. Put it down. Believe that I'm better than this and have some clarity of mind that would help you to see me better, to help you to love me better, to be more devoted to me. And for 10 years, it was so hard. And the way that I settle, let me just tell you, the way that I settle is that, you know, I no longer smoke real cigarettes, but it's really easy for me to settle for pipe tobacco. I'm just being totally vulnerable with you guys. This is this is where we settle. This is what we all do, that we take a call from God. We take a, uh, something that God is saying, hey, if you would just lay this down, if you would just believe me for this, Joshua, if you would just believe for me that, that I am the one who can satisfy you at a foundational, soul-deep level, that I am better than anything you can get in this world. If you would believe that I'm going to meet you on the other side of that effort with joy and with love and with fulfillment, then you would you you could get through this. But for me, I'm like, well, I'm not going to go all the way over there, but I'll, I'll I'll take a step that way. And I settle for a half fulfillment of God's promises. Yeah, sure, I don't I don't have cigarettes anymore. I don't want those anymore. But do I still settle for a watered-down fulfillment? Is there, is there still more for me to enter into in God's call and in God's promise? Or are we settling? All of us do this. And there is nothing that will undercut what you think is possible for God to do in your life than settling. Then in your mind, excusing God out of his promise, saying, ah, oh, this is too hard. I know that you said you'd help me in this way, but honestly, it's really too hard. So I'm just going to, I'm going to settle in this way. Don't settle. So that's the enemy of believing God, of changing our plausibility structure. There is help in this text also. And it's, uh, we're finally going to talk about it. Finally going to talk about the C word. So what in the world does that have to do with what we're talking about? Well, uh, let, let me go ahead and just read it. I'll read uh, 18, or, uh, 17, 9, and then we'll kind of skip over to verse 22. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. 
Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskins shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Skip over to verse 22. When God had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house were bought with his money. Every male among the men of Abraham's house and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. That very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael was 13 13 years old. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So what in the world is going on here? What in the world does this have to do with believing God's promise? This feels super random. But it's not. It's not random. Circumcision was something that uh, was super common in the ancient Near Near Eastern world. I mean, just consider how when God says, calls Abraham to be circumcised, Abraham doesn't say, what's that? He knows what it is. It's happening a lot in that culture. But God is infusing this already there cultural practice with a very powerful reminder. And it teaches us this. If we're going to change our plausibility structures and avoid settling. What's going to help us in that is doing the things that reinforce belief. Namely, obedience. Do the things that reinforce belief. Specifically, namely, obedience. And this is at the foundation of the circumcision call for Abraham here. It's an act of obedience that gave him a tangible picture that reinforced and rehearsed God's promise. Just think about it. If like, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to explain circumcision. If if you don't know what that is, you're too young for me to explain it to you. But think about it this way. God has promised to Abraham offspring. That is like one of the, the central foundational promises that he's made. Well, How does that happen? Again, you know. And God calls Abraham here to take uh, one of the instruments by which the promise will be fulfilled and to mark it. To mark it in a way that when he goes to uh, do the things that will fulfill that promise, that will bring about fulfillment, he's going to remember God said this will happen. God is giving him a tangible picture that will reinforce and rehearse his promise in seeking the fulfillment of that promise. It's the instrument by which the promise would be fulfilled. Believing God sometimes means doing what He says even when it feels like, what's the point? Because God is doing, God is calling you to things that will help, that will reinforce in you belief. Doing reinforces belief. Living an obedient life in the face of doubt and confusion helps us to stay expectant and helps our doubting spirits catch up with our actions. I mean, we see that in the text that Abraham, obviously in verses uh, 15 through 21, he's doubting, he's laughing at God. But then 
He goes to obey God in this call of circumcision. And who, what's the Abraham that we see in chapter 18? He's reverent. He's falling on his face. As soon as, as soon as God shows up, he's ready to serve. He's like, God, I'm so glad that you showed up. I'm so, is there anything that I can do to refresh you? Is there anything that I can get to, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you cake. I'll give you meat, whatever it is. I just want to serve you. I'm so happy that you came here. And so the doubting Abraham of chapter 17 turns into the reverent Abraham after the act of obedience. That his spirit had to catch up with his actions. After Abraham obeyed, he came back reverent and ready to serve God. And this is not hypocrisy. This is not hypocrisy. This is, this is faith-driven discipleship. This is one of the strongest forms of faith that looks at difficulty, that looks at adversity, that looks at a dull spirit and says, it doesn't matter. God is true. God is trustworthy. So I'm going to live the life that accords with that reality. That's not hypocrisy. That is discipleship. It takes, even when we're not feeling it, even when we're feeling doubting and we're cast down, it refuses to give in to those things. And it says, God is true. Because of that, I'm going to keep moving forward. And this, I mean, we do this all the time. This is what we want with our kids, right? Like we want our kids to be so uh, to so believe and trust that we love them and that we have their best interest in mind, that they would listen to us even when they can't understand how that command or how that direction is tied to that love, is tied to that good for them. That's what we want. We want them to believe that so deeply that even when they can't understand how doing this thing has to do with their own good, they still do it. That's what we want. And that's what God wants to trust his love, to trust his goodness so much that we would do the things that eventually will reinforce belief. If you, if you had every assurance that God was good, that God's promises will come true, that his faithfulness is true, that his grace is enough for you, that he is strong and powerful and nothing can stop him, if you believe that in your guts, what kind of life would you live? Live that life. Even when you don't feel it, even when you don't feel like you have that assurance that God is there, that God is good, that God is gracious, think about what life would look like if you did have that and then go and live that life because that is going to reinforce and again, rehearse God's promise for you in a powerful way. Doing reinforces belief. Doing looks at adversity, looks at doubt, looks at confusion, and refuses to fold. Not out of some self-dependence and because we're so awesome, we're going to do it anyway, but because we believe even, even deeper and lower than our emotions and what we're feeling, we believe in our guts in, our, in the cardia, that old Latin word of just the soul of who we are, we believe there that God is good and his promise will be fulfilled. So I'm going to live in accordance with that. So that's what we learned from Genesis 17 through 18-15. We got to change, if we're going to believe God and not just believe in him, 
we've got to change our plausibility structures. We've got to change how we think of what is possible. And instead of looking at our emotions and our view of efficiency, we've got to look at, we've got to take God's promises and match them up against his character and his power. We've got to refuse to settle. We've got to say no to the idolatry of letting God off the hook, of settling for less than what God has promised. And we've got to do the things that are going to reinforce belief, knowing, trusting that God on the other side of that difficulty, on the other side of that doing, is going to bring a lot of joy. It's faith. It's conviction of things not seen, but it's conviction. It's it's conviction that's settled in our spirits and says yes to God. I believe you. And friends, as Christians, there is no better reason to believe God than Jesus Christ. Than the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done. We can change what we think is possible when we consider that in Jesus Christ, all of our sin has been cleansed. We're free from condemnation. We've been brought into a family with a loving, all-powerful Father, what could not be possible with that type of assurance of hope that that we are united to Jesus Christ and we have the same access to the Father that He does, that we can come to the Father with the same expectancy and hope that He does because we're united to Him by faith. That is the best reason to change your plausibility structure because you are united to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who has un fettered access and authority to come in and ask. And he says that come in and ask in his name. And then not only that, it's Jesus is the best reason to not settle. Jesus is the best reason to not settle. If you have a father in heaven who sees you, who knows you, who's working your life together, who's bending the arc of your life to end at the glory of Jesus and your joy in him, why would you settle? Why would you settle for something so small, for a substitute, for a futile and fragile substitute of what God really wants for you, has planned for you, and is leading you toward? If you're that secure in Jesus, if you have that type of access to God in Jesus, why would we settle? And then even more so, even more than our obedience reinforces belief, Jesus' obedience in our place reinforces belief. Jesus' perfect record given to us by faith reinforces belief. It helps us to know that, that the, the war's already been won. The, records are, the, the record of perfection has already been established in Jesus Christ. So there's no bad day that I can have. There's no bad week, bad month, bad year that I can have that's going to disqualify me from God's promises. As 2 Corinthians says that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Because he lived a perfect life. All of the threads of God's promises are weaved together in Jesus Christ and are given to us as a sure and steady hope. And no matter our performance or lack thereof, we don't have to doubt it. Because it's not based on us. It's Jesus' obedience reinforces our belief. 
It takes the assurance of God's promises out of our hands and into the, into the hands of the perfect one, who the one who had the perfect record, obeyed God at every turn. And now, and now the Father says, that's true of us. His doing reinforces our belief. Because of that, friends, I, I want you to feel the possibility. I want you to be haunted by what is possible as a son or daughter of God. I want you to feel in your bones what could be in your life, in our city, in this nation, in Icon Church, if you believed God for his promises, instead of being dulled by the complacency of settling, of deriding God's character out of suspicion. What could there be? What could God have for Icon? What could God have for your marriage? A universe of possibilities opens up. So let's believe God for that. Let me pray. Father, I, I thank you that you are the faithful God. Father, teach us to expect your faithfulness. Teach us to rehearse in our minds and our hearts the promises that you have made. And from that, change how we think. To really, to really take the question seriously that you say in Genesis 18, is there anything too hard for you? Is there anything too wonderful for you, God? The answer is surely, unequivocally, no. Nothing is too hard. Nothing is too wonderful. And you have, out of the generosity of your grace and love, opened up to us your power and your promises. God, give us hope. Strengthen our faith by the power of your Holy Spirit. Pray that myself and those listening would be moved to prayer. They wouldn't walk away from this message feeling like, I just got to believe more. I got to try harder. But they would receive a strengthened faith as a gift of your grace. That, you'd, that your grace would be you doing for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. We trust you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, in his perfect record, in his sacrifice, in his resurrection and a power and sitting on the throne right now, in his name we pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.